I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of heaven, out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Lord God, we pray together uh, this line from the psalm. You speak in my heart, you speak in our hearts, and say, seek my face. Your face, Lord, will I seek. And as we meditate together on the transfiguration, we thank you for the gift of your Son, the Word who became flesh, who showed us the face of God in the face of our humanity. And in that moment, when he was transfigured, showed us what you intend to do for us and what you intend to do for your creation, that we would all be on fire with the glory of your light and your love. And so I find myself insufficient to speak of these things, Lord, so I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Welcome to St. Bart's. My name is Chris Myers. I'm one of the priests here. We're glad that you're joining us this Sunday. And this Sunday, we celebrate the Transfiguration as the capstone to the season of Epiphany. Um, In the season of Epiphany, we have these stories and these moments where the glory of God in Christ is shown... um, And his mission is unveiled. Who is this Jesus that was born um, in a manger? What what did he come to do? What is he about? These moments and these stories give us pictures of who he is and what he's come to do. And in this moment, this transfiguration, uh, it's just glaringly, blindingly white. (laughs) And in a way, it's so overwhelming. And Peter's response really is our response hey, Rabbi, it's great we're here. <laughs> uh, we don't know what to say. He was terrified. And so it's, it, it's actually really hard to talk about, but I'm gonna try, so we'll see how we do. I have a friend um, who is 
obsessed with experiences and loves adventures. He lives in LA, he owns a DeLorean. Okay, so he bought one of the DeLoreans so that he could have the Back to the Future car and drive around LA in it. That gives you a picture of him. He's very talented, he works in the movie business, uh, takes incredible trips, the kind of person that you know, you might be jealous of because he has so many great, amazing experiences. But he's always looking for the next thing, the next transformative experience. And that's how he talks about God, too. So when we've had conversations about faith, he grew up in the faith and is now kind of figuring out if that's what he still wants. And he said to me, it's like, well, I just want God to make himself so overwhelmingly, apparently real to me. (laughs) He wants a singular transformative experience that will wipe away every doubt and answer every question. And if there was ever such an event, the transfiguration would probably fit the bill. (laughs) And yet for the people there, especially Peter, it wasn't a self-interpreting event that wiped away every question and doubt that he had. Instead, the transfiguration initiated him on a journey, not just to understand what he saw, but to partake in what he saw in the transfigured face of Jesus. So what I want to do this morning, because we have these interesting pairings of readings, we have the Gospel of Mark where we have the account of the transfiguration, and then we have Peter's letter in 2 Peter where he talks about the transfiguration, what it was like, what it means that he was an eyewitness to this thing. And I want to look at the Peter that experienced it versus the Peter who writes about it at the end of his life to see what difference it made to him to be an eyewitness of this glory. Just as a reminder, he didn't get it in the moment. He didn't, and neither would we. And yet, over time, he comes to understand more and more the depth of that experience. So we begin with Mark's gospel, his account of the transfiguration. And Mark's gospel, in particular, puts Peter at the center of things in a way because most scholars think that Peter was the eyewitness behind Mark's gospel, that Mark wrote his gospel um, in light of what Peter said about following Jesus and Jesus' teachings and things like that. So this is really the closest to, if we can say this, what Peter actually experienced. So what is it that's happening in Mark chapter nine? Well, just before this, Peter has made his great confession that Jesus is the Christ, good for Peter, and then immediately gets it wrong because he can't accept that the Christ would suffer. So he has this in his mind, the Christ will suffer, and on the third day we rise again. And then Jesus takes him and James and John on a mountain, and this, this thing happens. He's transfigured. Jesus' clothes become radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Isn't it fascinating? It's not just his face that changes, but his clothes too. I don't have anything to say about that other than, isn't that interesting? (laughs) Um, I think it's saying something about this light that's coming out of him, is is that it it cleanses everything that it touches. It, It makes radiant everything that it touches. So even his clothes are radiant white. So if that weren't enough, then Elijah and Moses show up. So not only are we like slipping out of our understanding of of space, we're like slipping out of our understanding of time. Like the space-time continuum is bending around Jesus. He is the DeLorean. Jesus is the DeLorean. There we go. Um, I'm done. Let's pray. 
So Elijah and Moses show up, and what would you say? Rabbi, it's, it's good we're here. <laughs> what is happening? And the cloud overshadows them. He wants to build these tents. <clears throat> and then there's this voice. And the voice says what the voice has said before. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That's what happened. And Peter, in the moments, trying to react to it. Okay, let's build three tents. Tents go in glory, go in tents. That's the only thing that I know how to respond. But then we have his letter. And I think Second Peter is one of the deep cuts of the New Testament. It's worth meditating on. We, we get obsessed with Paul. That's, that's like the Protestant uh, default. We get obsessed with Paul. Anglicans tend to preach the gospel passages a lot. We get obsessed with that. First and Second Peter are incredible letters. And Second Peter in particular, the first chapter, I would encourage you this week to meditate just on the first chapter of Second Peter. Because what we get in Second Peter is what you might call a last will and testament. He says, I'm about to leave this body. And he refers back to this story, really, in the, the end of John, where Jesus tells Peter, you're going to be led somewhere you don't want to go, and you're going to die in a way that's unexpected. And Peter has some sort of insight that that's about to happen. And in this letter, he says, hey, I want to stir you up by way of reminder. I'm about to leave the body. What is it that I want to tell you? And what does he zero in on but the transfiguration? So as we look at his unpacking of the meaning of that story, as we meditate on the transfiguration, we find that for Peter and for us, that it takes actually a lifetime, and I would dare say it takes eternity, <laughs> to unfold the meaning and the power of this moment of transfiguration. We'll keep moving deeper and deeper into the mystery of the transfiguration. So we've heard the story, but what is it that Peter comes to understand about what he saw on the mountain? I think that what he comes to understand finally is not, the reason that he was wrong about the three tents, it's not, <laughs> the number is wrong. <laughs> it doesn't need three tents, there's just one. Where does the glory of God dwell? Well, it dwells in the tabernacle, it dwells in the temple. Peter's impulse is right. We, we want a way to commemorate the glory of God, but he was wrong about where that glory dwelled. Jesus is the tent of glory. That's what Peter comes to understand, that Jesus is the place where God's glory resides, that Christ's body is the place where God's glory resides. And wrapped up with that, I, I think that what Peter came to understand is that the beloved one the one whose God's declaration of belovedness is over, is the glorified one. That love and glory go together in a way. So that's one thing that Peter comes to understand, that Jesus is the tent of glory. Related to that, what he comes to understand is that Jesus is the one who gathers up the law and the prophets. That's why Moses and Elijah are there. Moses represents the giving of the law and Elijah represents the work of the prophets. And those two things always went hand in hand in the Old Covenant as well, is that the law was given, and the prophets would come along to stir up the people by way of reminder, that's what Peter's language is. This is what God did, this is the covenant, this is who God's called you to be, this is who we are in God, that's what prophets did. They came and prosecuted the law in a way, or 
embodied the law in a way to make it look livable. So Moses represents the tradition of the law and Elijah represents the tradition of the prophet. And they are basically passing the baton to Jesus because he's gathering all those things up into his person to fulfill the law and the prophets. But I think there's something else going on too with Moses and Elijah. Because these were both men who had profound experiences of the glory of God. That Moses on the Mount of Sinai asked to see the glory of God. And God said, you can't see my face, but you can see me pass by you. And Moses was so affected by that experience that his face shone with that glory, reflected that glory. And the people were so overwhelmed by that, they asked him to wear a veil. Elijah, too, after his encounter with the prophets of Baal, runs from Jezebel, fearing for his life, and he goes to the mountain of God. He goes to Sinai. And he experiences there the glory of God that's in the still, small voice. Moses and Elijah both had these profound experiences of the glory of God. And to Peter, who's a good Jewish boy, he would understand that this is the law and the prophets, that these are people who saw the glory of God, and that Moses and Elijah looking to Jesus was telling him something very important, that this is the place where God's glory dwells. This is the face that you look towards. This is the one that you listen to, the beloved one in whom the Father is well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus is the tent of glory. Jesus gathers up the law and the prophets. And what Peter, I think, also comes to understand in in the combination of those two things is that God's glory ultimately is his self-sacrificial love. God's glory is his self-sacrificial love. In the Gospel of Mark, the transfiguration is bookended by two statements of Jesus saying what's going to happen to him. Before he goes up the mountain, he says, I'm going to suffer, and on the third day I'm going to rise again. And then immediately when they come down off the mountain, Jesus says it again. His glory is, is situated between the declaration that what he will do for his people is suffer for them, suffer on behalf of them in order to forgive their sins, in order to bear their burden, their sins. The Son of Man must suffer, is what he says. And in suffering, the Son of Man demonstrates that the belovedness that he experiences from the Father is not just between him and the Father, but that love is for the world. And where does God display that love to us but on the cross? If we want to see the glory of God, this is the paradox of the Christian faith. If we want to see the greatest glory of our God, we look to the cross. That undoes every understanding of glory that the world has. It's profoundly different to say our God who within him has the fullness of the Godhead would lay down his life. And then in laying down his life, he would show us the depth of his love and therefore the depth of his glory. So Peter, in his letter, comes to understand that Jesus is the tent of glory, that he gathers up the law and the prophets, that God's glory is his self-sacrificial love. And as you read the rest of 2 Peter, which I encourage you to do, what he comes to understand is that we, in a mysterious way, as the body of Christ, become the place where his glory dwells. That's that last move that's so hard for us. It's the thing 
that he's most encouraging us to meditate on and reflect on. That we now are the body of Christ. That we now are the place where, the God, where God's glory dwells. And if that's where his glory dwells, that's where his love is demonstrated. If his glory and his love go together, how does God's love go into the world? Through his body, us. So I want you to think about Peter the man. Peter, who's writing this letter as a final word and testament, coming to the end of his life, trying to gather up his thoughts, this profound life that he's lived, that one day somebody showed up on his boat and said, come and follow me, and he said yes. And here he is at the end of his life. And the, the Peter of Second Peter is not a totally different person. He has the same personality, but he is a man transformed. He is a man who's on the very journey that his epistle describes. One of the most... Um, one of the reasons I'd love for you to read Second Peter is the way that the letter opens. What does Peter say at the beginning of his letter? He says, his, his divine power, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. God has given to us because he loves us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to what? His own glory and his excellence. So at the very beginning, he's already thinking about the glory. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you all may become partakers of the divine nature. That's the journey that Peter's been on. That's the journey of transfiguration. That as we, that's what behold and become means. <laughs> that we as we look at Jesus, he transforms us from one degree of glory into the next. That's Paul's meditation, I think, on the transfiguration. One degree of glory to the next. Partaking of the divine nature. I'm gonna use a theological word. I'm sorry, not sorry. The Eastern church calls this journey the journey of theosis. Or the Western church calls it deification how God turns us into his image. We are partakers of the divine nature. We are blessed with everything pertaining to life and godliness. And so, because of that, therefore, we are called on a journey, what Peter says, to grow in faith and virtue. And he has a list of virtues, that our faith would lead us to virtue, that our virtue would lead us to knowledge, that our knowledge would lead us to self-control, that our self-control would lead us to steadfastness, that our steadfastness would lead us to godliness, and our godliness would lead us to brotherly affection, which would lead us to love. That's the journey. That's what it is to partake of the divine nature, to be taken deeper and deeper into the love of God, and to be taken and taken deeper into the love of God is to be taken deeper and deeper into the glory of God because his glory is his self-sacrificial love. So when we see Jesus transfigured on the mountain, that moment deepens the meaning of the cross. This isn't just some nice rabbi who's dying. This is the son of man. This is the beloved son of the father who pours out his life as a ransom for many. It unveils the meaning of the cross. 
so too the resurrection deepens the meaning of the transfiguration, that he's giving them a preview of what he's going to do in Jesus and for us. I told you that the space-time continuum sort of bends around the transfiguration. It's pointing backwards to the law and Moses gathering those things up. It's pointing forward to the resurrection and ultimately to the coming again of Jesus. One of these Greek fathers who talks about theosis, Gregory of Nazianzus, his title is The Theologian. So we should listen to him. He's the theologian. Gregory, the theologian. Which meant he was a man of prayer as well as a man of deep reflection. And he said this of the transfiguration. Jesus was bright as the lightning on the mountain and became more luminous than the sun, initiating us into the mystery of the future. Jesus is showing us what he's going to do for us. We are going to be radiant with the glory of God. All of creation will be radiant with the glory of God. The transfiguration becomes a picture of a light that sets us on fire from within so that we will all burn with the fire of God and not be consumed like the bush that Moses saw on Mount Sinai. That is the goal of the Christian life. What is the point of being a Christian? Is it to be a nice person? Let's not reduce it to that. (laughs) It's not less than that, but it's so much more than that. It's to become like Jesus. It's to look like him. It's to be aflame with his love, to be transfigured as Peter was. That's the goal of the Christian life, to become partakers of the divine nature. And we have to cling to this promise that he has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And how do we know that? Because he's given us his very self. He's given us his Holy Spirit. He wants to make us partakers of the nature, of his nature, because it is the nature of self-sacrificial love to invite others into it. It's not a selfish love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. It's a love that invites in. It's a love that transforms. It's a love that transfigures. This is why Peter wants to stir us up by way of reminder. He wants to hold before us the people that are come after him, and we are in that chain of people that, hey, you've been given everything. You've been given everything pertaining to life and godliness. And Peter's very life becomes a testimony to the transformative power of God's glory at work within a life. He didn't get it on the mountain. That's okay. That gives me hope. I probably would have said something stupid too. And yet, over the years, as the Holy Spirit works within him and through him, he comes to a deeper understanding of what it was that he saw. God wants us to partake more and more of his glory. He does, he's not holding it in to himself. He's not, he's not sitting on it like a gold hoard that he doesn't share with everybody. He gives it away over and over and over again through the power of his spirit. God wants us to partake of his glory. God wants us to radiate more and more of his glory in the world. And maybe the hardest part, I think, to grasp of all is that now we are the body of Christ and that we are the place where the glory of God dwells, where the love of God dwells and is radiated outward to the world. That's what it is to be the church. We are the body of Christ, the place where God's glory dwells, And we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. 
See, there's so much hope in that, but there's also a realism in that. It's not all at once. So the thing that my friend wants, I hope he gets it. (laughs) That he gets the transformative experience, but I hope he moves into it deeply in response of faith because there is no other way. Peter, the other way to think of the tent is, oh, I just wanna live on the mountain. You can't live on the mountain. I can't, you can't, but we have to take the mountain with us as we go into the valley. We need to look to people like Peter in our lives. Who are the people that you are ahead of you who have become partakers of the divine nature? whose lives are being transformed, who, when you're around them, they radiate the love of God. We need to surround ourselves with those people because it gives us hope that God can do that for us too. We need each other because believe it or not, we're the place where God's glory dwells and we reflect it back to each other. The body of Christ, through the gifts that he gives us, build each other up in love so that we grow into the fullness of the stature of the measure of Christ. Paul just strings it all together. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We're growing up into it. So we need people like Peter. We need each other. And we need to stir ourselves up by way of reminder that God is taking us on this journey, that he's given us everything, everything pertaining to life and godliness, and that he wants us because he is generous and kind and good and loving to partake of his divine nature. Let us pray. Lord God, um, it's an overwhelming thing to meditate on your love for us, an overwhelming thing to look to the cross and see there that you don't hold on to yourself. You give everything that you have away. And that death cannot defeat you, cannot destroy you, that you raise up out of that. And that promise of resurrection is the promise, Lord, that you will do for us what you did for Jesus. So I pray even now, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would stir us up by way of reminder. And if we are feeling hopeless, if we are filled with doubt, if we are dragging our feet in the life of faith, that we would be encouraged to move deeper and deeper into you, to take another step towards your glory and to believe, Lord, that you can and will transform us. And we pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.